Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. We're delighted to have Dr. Kathleen Nielsen with us today here at Beeson Divinity School. A welcome, Kathleen. Thank you very much. Kathleen is a fascinating person. She is a, a writer, a poet. She has taught English at the college level. Uh, she's a mom, a woman of faith. Uh, she's all kinds of different things. Uh, Kathleen, tell us how you got that way. Oh, by the grace of God, he's given me a good path and a path full of grace in generations of families who have known the Lord and served the Lord and loved words. Um, I come from kind of a line of writers, I guess, and um, love that, love to carry it on, love to pass it on. And uh, so it's just an honor to be here today. Now, uh, we talk about literature, writing, poetry. A lot of people think this really doesn't have much to do with the Christian faith. So what does literature have to do with our our faith in Jesus Christ? I love that question. Um, yeah, they seem like two different fields, literature, theology, or literature, biblical studies. Actually, in the context of a Christian liberal arts college where my husband and I serve, we get to explore that a lot. Um, well, the short answer to that question would have at least a couple parts. The first part would start with the fact that we have a creator God who made us in his image so that from the biblical perspective, which is the perspective from which I speak uh, with you, um, anything we create is a means of reflecting our creator God, art, music, and then we come to the area of words in particular, which has an even closer relationship because how did our God create the world? By speaking, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And so when we make with words, we, in a deep way, image our God and glorify him and grow that image of him in us. We are word creatures. My husband always likes to say we're not uh, carnivores, we're not herbivores, we're verbivores. (laughs) And uh, so we're creatures of words. That's the way God made us. And we show him in our making with words. One other part of the answer to that uh, is that the whole biblical story uh, is, from a biblical perspective, the story of the universe. And so every other story good, true story that's told in some way reflects that bigger meta narrative or whatever you want to call it. Um, So a story written even by a writer who doesn't know God, um, a good story can reflect, for example, the brokenness of the fall and tell that truly and reflect even the truth of the bigger story of which he's unaware. So we're participating in that bigger story. I'm going to come back to this thought, but you mentioned your husband, and I forgot to mention his name. It's Dr. Neil Nielsen. He's the president of Covenant College on Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And how did you two meet? We met at Wheaton College on a double date, not with each other. (laughs) Actually, we came together uh, permanently through participating in a study group, summer study group to France. Fell in love in France, in the Loire River Valley, somewhere between Paris and the University of Nice, while we were visiting all those beautiful chateaux. That sounds very romantic. (laughs) Well, back to literature and and words. You're talking about uh, uh, that wonderful phrase, verbivore. 
well, um, it seems to me that in our culture, words have taken a real hit. And the whole process of language uh, itself is under attack in a lot of ways. It's been devalued. Uh, say a little bit about that. Why is that the case, and uh, what can we do about it? It's a hugely important subject as for everybody, because we're all verbivores, but especially for Christian people who are to be people of the Word in a very special way. God's given us a book of words as his revelation of himself is speaking to us. And yes, we live in a culture... Uh, which is full of words, um, but words have become very cheap. We can we can delete thousands or millions of them with the touch of a button. We use them very carelessly. We've come to disbelieve in the actual power of words to communicate any objective truth intended by the author. We've, you know, um, sort of planted the truth or the meaning of a text, I should say, in the interpreter or the reader or the receiver so that according to his or her own experience and uh, method of an interpretation, he or she decides on the meaning of the text, which is constantly changing. I don't believe God means his revelation or means words to work that way. And so uh, we really are engaging in almost um, a countercultural activity when we try to take these words of Scripture or any words and um, believe in their meaning and their power to communicate truth, to communicate Period. Now, you did a Ph.D. at Vanderbilt University and in literature, and this involved your reading novels and analyzing them, thinking about their meaning. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, this great novelist, has said that fiction is an escape into reality. Uh, many people think it's the opposite, an escape from reality. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I guess the answer to that question depends on what reality is. <laughs> if you think that reality is purely material, which a lot of people do these days and would argue for that, um, then fiction, words on a page about non-material things, would be an escape from reality. If you believe that there is this large story of the universe going on and that it's true and that there are lots of invisible things happening, um that have to do with creation, fall, redemption, the coming consummation, um, then connecting with those realities through words is one of the most real activities in which we can participate. And in fact, we should have eyes for that everywhere in the invisible world. Flannery O'Connor said that when she hears a peacock cry, it's as if she hears a cheer for an invisible parade. She had eyes for this big story that was happening, and her fiction is not literally true. <laughs> Some of it, actually, you might meet on the streets of Georgia or might have in her day. Uh, but she got at truth in an amazing way through her fiction. Now, you're obviously a really good reader um, because you're also a good writer and a good speaker. We've heard that today when you spoke in our Beeson Chapel service. Uh, so in your own reading, uh, what books, what authors have really moved you and uh, shaped your own vision of, of the Christian life? Oh, goodness. It's hard to pinpoint. But as I look back, I, like many people, think of particular English teachers who influenced me. It's, it's interesting to me how many people say that to me. When I uh, was a student at a girls' school in St. Louis um, – I had an English teacher. He actually spoke with an English accent. He was from England, 
who could read poetry or read drama and make it come alive. That influenced me hugely. And I would say not just in my literary study, but in my love of the word and in my whole development as a person. He could read lines from King Lear, for example. I remember that first scene with Cordelia and King Lear in which he asks her after her sisters have given empty flowery language to express their love. He says to her, speak. And she says, nothing. And he says, nothing, nothing will come of nothing. I remember him making that scene come alive. I remember him making Gerard Manley Hopkins I read Hopkins first with him. I remember his voice reading, Margaret, are you grieving over golden grove unleaving? And then the last line of that poem, it is Margaret, you grieve for. Mm. Um, so it was, it was works like that, major works, mm. Lear, Hopkins, uh, and then on in college, again, more Shakespeare with a wonderful professor named Dr. Beatrice Batson uh, at Wheaton College. And... Um, reading works that amazed me by their beauty and by their ability to express true perceptions of the human condition and the universal story. You know, this this thing about high school teachers, I, I would also include myself in that number because when I was a student at Chattanooga High School, yeah. I had three high school teachers who all taught English, but a different angle. Wow. There was Miss Smallwood who taught us grammar, yeah. so I never split infinitives anymore. I remember yes. Miss Smallwood. <laughs> And then there was there was Miss Walker, who taught us uh, how to do research papers and footnotes. Well, I've been doing footnotes all my life. I learned that from Miss Walker. What a gift. But then there was Lucille Johnson, and Lucille Johnson taught us poetry. Oh. And she would do exactly what your teacher. She would come to class and dress up in her mittens and her snow cap and read, you know, Jack London to us about snow and ice. And then she would read Blake. I'll never forget her reading William Blake and and making Blake come alive. Uh, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the darkness of the night. Uh, so these people, you know, it's, which says to me that a lot about language and literature is incarnational. You know, it isn't simply reading something in a book. It's encountering a person who has been shaped by words and language and who passed that on to us. Words are meant to be given and received, experienced aloud. I think I learned that um, in one of the most vivid ways um, as we lived in England for a couple of years when our oldest son was five. I intended to homeschool him, but we found this lovely little village school sort of down the walking path, you know, and across the pasture, and he loved it, and we let him attend there. And they read out loud to their students, their five-year-old students, uh, constantly, and in fact had parents in by the hour to, to have the children read to an adult one-on-one -on -one for long periods of time. And I would always sign up to do that because these little children articulating their words so beautifully, it was such a pleasure. And I saw the love of language planted in my oldest son during those years by giving and receiving it orally and sharing these stories together. It was lovely. And you have three three sons. Yes. They're all adults now. They are. So as you think about kind of their own formation in your family, you and Neil bringing them up, uh, what role did words, literature, stories have in that process? Mm, a huge role, as it does for so many families. I mean, I, like many in my generation, would point back to the Narnia Chronicles as, as just uh, a, a 
deep part of our experience as a family and of our reading, again, many of them out loud in those early years. I think that's crucial for children. We read a lot of poetry. I think children have an instinctive love for poetry, which we sort of crush out of them by, what, 13 or 14 or 15 in our culture. But they, I mean, don't you remember, I oh, how I love to go up in a swing, up in the sky so blue. Oh, I do think it the pleasantest thing ever a child could do. It's the rhythm of the words they love. We read a lot of just traditional Milne. We read Beatrix Potter. We read, we had a Shel Silverstein stage, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they read a lot of the good adventure novels for boys, Kidnapped Treasure Island, they read a lot. We read a lot together. We read the Bible together out loud regularly. That was a gift to me and my family, and I felt that we, we both felt that was hugely important. So lots of reading and lots of reading out loud and lots of poetry for children. Now, you mentioned that poetry is sometimes, well, it's a, it's a, it's a hard sell in our culture today for lots of the reasons we've talked about already. Uh, and yet uh, poetry is deeply rooted in Scripture itself, yes. isn't it? Uh, say a little bit about that and how we can uh, encourage a renaissance of poetry loving and poetry reading mm. in our culture today. Would that we could and may we. Yeah, scripture is so full of poetry and goodness. How often do we hear sermons say on a psalm which don't even acknowledge that this is poetry or notice the poetry? How often do we in our bulletins when um, words from the Psalms or Isaiah or some of the poetic books are quoted. How often are the lines not even delineated in the printing so that we can take in the meaning as the meaning is intended, intended to be given to us in the parallel lines? You know, C.S. Lewis in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, talks about the fact that it's either this great random accident Or it's this grand providence of God, the poetry, which was meant to be given to nations of all languages, all the nations of the earth, should have as its chief formal characteristic um, this parallelism, this quality, which is actually quite translatable into different languages. I mean, you can't you can't translate rhyme and rhythm and other poetic elements, but you can actually get this. quality, this parallelism of the lines and of the ideas in any translation. And uh, it is beautiful to notice. We can teach people to notice this. I mean, I work hard in, in my Bible studies. I write Bible studies to take account of the poetry and to have that be a part of the way we take in the meaning. I mean, for example, uh, Psalm 119 has a lot of verses about the word and the parallel lines are crucial. For example, Psalm 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. Then the parallel line is, I hope in your word. So that it's not, those are not two separate ideas. God being our hiding place and our shield is intricately connected to the fact that we're hoping in his word. And as we hope in his word, he becomes our shield through our hiding in the word. So the meaning comes to us um, married by those lines. The rhythm of it is beautiful. And the more we pay attention to it with our children, with the people in our Bible study groups, as pastors in churches, the more I think, and the more we read poetry in general. We should not read just biblical poetry, but... uh, 
poetry. Well, you know, in the Christian tradition, there's this whole idea of lexio divina, this holy reading of the Bible, and uh, this spills over into other kinds of literature that relate to God, relate to the world that God has made and our place in it. And uh, I found myself, as I've grown older, that poetry nurtures me in a special way and uh, is, is a form of access to prayer and coming into the presence of God in prayer. Like, you know, George Herbert's wonderful poem, On Prayer, which is really just a whole string of definitions of prayer, but put together in such a way that it's so engaging, it draws you into the heart of God. And I think that's what language can do that is graced by the Spirit uh, in the context of faith. Mm, that's beautiful. It also makes you think about the fact that Jesus is called the Word and that he is the ultimate um, speaking to us, that w- that a word could be that alive and that personal coming to us in Christ himself ultimately. I want to push you a little bit more on this question because you are a Bible teacher and you do Bible studies. And it seems to me that what you bring, this kind of uh, poetic uh, awareness of Scripture and openness to the nuances of Scripture and the, the, the way the language, the rhythms of the language um, – that's a good corrective to the way Bible study is often pursued in uh, evangelical Bible-believing circles today, where it's read in a kind of linear way without much attention to context. Uh, why is it important? I mean, what do we learn? What do we learn, and wh- and how do we grow spiritually by doing what you're advocating? Poetry comes into us um, not in usually a linear and purely logical way. Poetry enlivens our imaginations, our senses. I mean, people think poetry's abstract, but actually theology's abstract. Poetry's about sheep and grass and bread and, you know, concrete images. And so we can uh, awaken our whole selves through the beauty of that imagery, through the sound and the, the feeling of the language so that think God must mean to come into us as whole beings in a way we're not allowing. I mean, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes. So many people have tried to make that book into sort of a logical, outlinable argument or Song of Songs. And it just doesn't work. It's not a logical progression of ideas. It's this poetic circling round and round that causes us to lose our balance in a way. But how good for us to be asking those questions in a way that takes us off balance and that ultimately makes us fall into the arms of God. Now, you are a poet. You've written poetry and do write poetry. Um, So talk a little bit about how one does that. I mean, there are some things that are very mysterious to me. Uh, For example, playing a piano. It's just amazing to me that people can play the piano and they never look at their fingers. They just, they just go everywhere. Yeah. And, and writing a poem is kind of like that. I love to read poetry and I love to hear other people, but to write a poem, that sounds a little bit like climbing Mount Rainier to me. That's a big thing. Now you do this all the time. How do you, how do you teach yourself to write poems? Well, I, I'm not an expert poet and, um, I do love to write poetry, but I, I want you to know I don't speak as an expert or a much published um, public poet figure. But I, I think writing when you love words in one sense comes naturally because when something occurs that touches you deeply or makes you think deeply, you have a desire to articulate it in one way or another if you're a person of words. 
And if you love poetic words, it feels right to do that in poetic language. Um, it comes naturally, but it's hard work. Um, and you know that poets work hours, you know, on the changing of a phrase or the fit of a word or, you know, the rhythm of a line. So I love to spend that kind of craft, craftsmanship time um, shaping phrases to get at. There's such a satisfaction in getting at a true expression and working at that. Um, and you never really say, there, I've got it, do you? But um, <laughs> yeah. there's a great joy and satisfaction in it. Now, who are some poets that you've read lately that uh, mean a lot to you or that you would recommend to some of our listeners today? Well, let's see. I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. You already know that about me because I, I read a poem of Hopkins uh, in the chapel talk today. Hopkins was a deeply Christian man and um, captured in this uh, surprising, in this astonishing language, and uh, the rhythm and the vocabulary, the deep truths of the Christian faith. He's one of my great favorites. You know, kind of contrast to Hopkins would be Amy Carmichael. I love mm -hmm. Amy Carmichael's poetry. It's very simple, especially in contrast mm -hmm. with Hopkins. But she, um, in her simple beauty, expressed deep truths, deep truths of humility and often pictured in um, astute observations of nature and of people. Those are two of my favorites. Well, if there's someone listening and they're just a little bit afraid of poetry, afraid of getting into it, uh, what's a good way to encourage them to, to begin to read poetry and to choose poems to read? I would recommend Amy Carmichael. Uh, enthusiastically because she is simple and accessible. Uh, I would also recommend a, um, a book called Invitation to the Classics, edited by Louise Cowan and Os Guinness. Um, they actually discuss not just poets, but great writers in all genres and um, give kind of open doorways into experiencing writers you might not know well. But buy a Norton anthology of poetry, or just an anthology of poetry, and kind of work your th way through it, tasting different poems yeah. a little at a time, and you actually come to enjoy it. A few years ago, I started reading a poem a day. Did you really? I take a vitamin a day, and I read a poem a day. <laughs> that, that, I don't know if I like that or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't know which one does me better, but it in, enlightens uh, all kinds of things in ways that I never expected. Since you're a poet and a writer, um, we have to ask you to read one of your own poems. And would you do that and tell us a little bit about it, if you would? I would be delighted to do that. I grabbed one on my way out um, that I wrote, oh, a number of years ago as I was living in Wheaton and had a good friend whose life was very much like mine. She taught English part-time. I taught um, uh, part-time literature courses at, at the college, at Wheaton College there for many years, and she was raising a family at the same time as well. She um, died of cancer, and uh, I kind of watched her and experienced that journey with her and wrote this poem for her right after she died. It's called For Santa. It's probably a little bit like going to bed at night. Finally, you must... Although you're never nearly done with all the jobs and all the pleasures pressing. Still, you know the night is here. You know the night is made for rest. 
your tired legs are tired of carrying you, and so many others have already gone to sleep. And so you put a marker in the book and organize the piles of papers on the desk to be continued, and you curl exhausted into bed more than ready. That's how I might see it from the side of day and night. How it looks from the side where there is no night, I can imagine, but only halfway. I can do it best by looking in the face of one who laid his body down for a long, dark, three-day night, and who then broke apart the night and rose a sun that never will go down. It's probably more like waking up and knowing that the work got done last night, completely, all of it, down to the bottom of each pile, and feeling like a child who gets to play outside all day for all the sunny day and never get tired and never, ever have to go to bed at night again. Dr. Kathleen Nielsen, thank you so much for being our guest today and for this very special conversation. Thank you. One of the classic confessions of the Reformation declares that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. At Beeson Divinity School, we honor the Office of Preaching, and each year we sponsor the William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. I want to invite you to this year's Conger Lectures with Dr. Earl Palmer. He's going to be speaking to us this year on Preaching and the Barman Declaration. This great confession of faith from 1934, given in the midst of the Nazi period by courageous Christians who wanted to call the church back to the gospel and to the proclamation of the gospel on the basis of Holy Scripture. That's Dr. Earl Palmer, the Conger Lectures at Beeson Divinity School. Come and join us for this very special time. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.